My younger brother accepted an invitation to study with His Holiness of Bonn. My brother actually intuited that he had been a part of their order before, in a past life. For attorney and aspiring writer Adam Hill, his journey towards understanding the life of his younger brother, Eric, began by coping with his death, both in the present and a thousand years before either of them was ever born. He failed in his task to protect Tibet. And that ended up being a part of the reason he decided to leave this body permanently in 2012. Receive your brother's name, his name that pierced the veil between refuge and failure. It is the blade and the blooming all at once. Pass through iron gates four times and hear a stranger say, you're on the right path. Hear this, you're on the right path. Your name is on the wind of another way. Know that this is the right path, too. That's poet Kelly Bell. Today, she speaks with Adam about the process of chronicling his brother's untimely passing, their family's journey to lay him to rest, and how his death opened a door for Adam to more fully understand a faith practice that motivated his brother to travel across the globe in search of truth. Then Kelly takes the Hill family's spiritual pilgrimage and turns it into poetry. From Nashville Public Radio, PRX, and the Porch Writers Collective, I'm Joshua Moore. This is Versify. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to support this work, you can make a donation at WPLN.org. So it starts with my younger brother. He was an aspiring monastic who had left his comfortable home and Nashville, Tennessee. Aspiring to a life of asceticism isn't generally what you'd expect from a typical young person. But growing up, Adam's brother Eric was a bit of an outlier. Introspective and mystically inclined, he wasn't interested in conventional measures of success. Adam remembers how their mom and Eric would argue over academics. She wanted to ensure that he did well in school, but Eric was rarely motivated by receiving the best letter grade. Then, in college, he discovered a faith practice that truly aligned with his sense of personal fulfillment, and he decided to become a Tibetan monk. He accepted an invitation to study with His Holiness of Bonn in northern India. The Bonn are traditional Tibetan shamans. The Bonpo are disciples of the Bonn belief system, the native folk religion of Tibet. Bon shares many characteristics in common with Tibetan Buddhism, but it actually predates it and helped inform many of Tibetan Buddhism's ritual practices and beliefs. Bon was the region's major religion until about the 7th century. So to call a 21st century Bon practice unconventional is a bit of an understatement. When he was studying with His Holiness, he learned how to manipulate his soul energy so that it would expel out of the top of his crown. They called it the POA practice. The POA practice was the process of expelling one's soul energy up and into the divine, and then calling it back again, each time firing a single word. So the word to expel it was pay, and the word to bring it back down was che, so pay and che. 
so I was, he was telling me about this in my den one day, and I was like, wait a minute, what happens if you get out and you can't come back in? He said, well, that's why we have that additional word. That's why we say che. I'm like, well, so let's say the worst happens. You're underneath a falling boulder or a dinosaur is about to grab you or you are in a no way out situation. What do you do? He's like, well, yeah, you say pay. And then you, say, you think to yourself, don't say che, don't say che, don't say che. And then that's what you do. <laughs> As he progressed through his training in the Bonpo traditions, Eric began to suspect that somehow this wasn't the first time he was learning these techniques. My brother actually intuited that he had been a part of their order before in a past life. And he learned that he had actually been given a task in that past life by his guru from a thousand years ago. And his guru told him that he would have the chance to save Tibet. He saw that an army was coming. It was the Chinese army in the 1950s. So my brother was shown how he failed to protect Tibet. And that failure confused him. He wasn't able to let go of that truth. That ended up being a part of the reason why he decided to leave this body permanently in 2012. Just to be clear, you said he left his body permanently. Did he commit suicide? Yeah, that's the word we use, yeah. Yeah. Eric passed away in March of 2012. He was found at their family home in Florida, where he'd been helping to oversee renovations. He didn't leave a note, but Adam says that, according to Eric's journal, it seemed as though he'd been in a pretty dark place. Still dispirited about the alleged failures of his past life, and adding to that sense of unease, he had difficulty finding work. Felt desperate to return to his studies with the Bonpo. Adam thinks that without that stabilizing force, Eric felt rudderless, cast adrift without a sense of direction. They found him in the pool, wounds on both of his arms, a bottle of blood thinners left in the kitchen. Their mother was the first to be notified. She called Adam. He called their father. So I had to tell my dad that Eric was dead. It was like I had struck him. It was like I was surprised by how quickly he recoiled and fell onto my shoulder. It's a blow that it, no one wants to have to be the one to deliver, but it, it, it fell to me that day. Has, have your feelings changed since you, know, you first found out your brother had left and now? Or what was the journey of kind of emotions? Uh, the, the overwhelming emotion is pain. But for the most part, my experiences of grief were really about the missed opportunities of me not being able to interact with him. It wasn't so much a fear of where he was or how he was doing. I was in great pain that first night, but when I went to sleep, my brother brought me a dream. And in the dream, he gave me a message that he was just fine, that he had lived the life as he had meant to live it. And so that was a salve for me that I was able to hold on to that comforted me going forward until I was really ready to look at it in a deeper way. Before he left the Bonpo, Eric came to believe that his prior incarnation had founded a monastery in a remote region of Tibet called Rizing, and that the monastery had been destroyed and rebuilt multiple times throughout history. 
Adam says that Eric intuited that there was a cave that was over the monastery and that something had been built in front of it, blocking the sacred space. And so when he left, he left us the task of seeing if we could unblock the cave face and allow more light to come into that area. So our task was to see if we could find the cave. So two years after Eric's death, Adam and his father set out on a trip to Tibet and India to see if they could finish the work. So the first, the first stop on the leg was to go and visit His Holiness of Bonn and ask him why my brother had not been recognized because he had confused my brother about whether or not he was actually the reincarnation of this ancient monk. So we get to the monastery in India and His Holiness calls us into his private office within our being there about 15 minutes. And we get inside and it is so clear to me how much this man loved my brother. He called him Laude Lekpo. And although my brother wondered whether or not he was this ancient monk, the only clue he needed was embedded in the name. His Holiness told them that the Lekpo name was reserved only for those who were reincarnated from a past life in the Bonpo tradition, what's known as a tolku. Which meant that he was, in essence, recognized. So that relieved us of a question that we had held for a long time, which was, why hadn't Eric been recognized? And in a way, he had been. Hmm. Our next stop was to see if we could reach the cave and the monastery in Tibet. We got told no by every tour company that we worked with, except for one. That one company said, sure, just pay an extra fee, we'll get you there. So the night before we're supposed to go, we have a meeting, and it turns out they've made a mistake. They thought we were talking about another monastery. In China, you can only travel to remote areas of Tibet if you have four different military permits that take months to change, which meant if Adam and his father wanted to keep going, they'd have to proceed despite knowing that the military could stop them at any turn. All that night, Adam was up praying that the obstacles on their path would be cleared. And the next morning, when they set out for the temple, as they reached the first checkpoint on the route, Adam says his heart was in his throat. He knew that if they were found out, their journey would be over. But as they moved through the security check, something unexpected happened. They don't say a word. They don't stop us at all. Having cleared the first hurdle, they continued down the road in the direction they thought the temple might be. But quickly, it became evident that the security checks wouldn't be their only obstacle. We have no idea where we're going. And we ask a random passerby on the side of the street if he knew where Rezing was. He says, no, not go, got no idea. Drive down the road a little bit more until we meet one man who says, yes, I do know where it is, and you're on the right path. We grab him into the car. He takes us the right way until eventually we find it, this monastery that was so significant to my brother in his life, and I'm elated. We get out, and a single monk walks outside and says hello to us. And we don't know how he's going to respond. Maybe he's with the Chinese, maybe he's not. Turns out he knew my brother. He had been there that day that he made it to the monastery in the cave. So he lets us into 
the monastery and gives us the look around and he lets us go into the cave where I have the chance to spread my brother's ashes. And the monk shows us around, shows us the meditation seats, shows us the windows that look out upon the Himalayan mountains. As Adam and his father toured the grounds, they discovered that the cave was in fact a holy site dedicated to the monk Eric believed to be his prior incarnation. There's a shrine inside there that had these relics from that past life. And I was able to connect with not only my, my brother's life in this life, but able to connect to his lifetime from about a thousand years ago. And luckily I had brought two scarves, which are offering scarves called katas. I laid two katas on the shrine, one for me and one for my brother. And that is how I was able to understand my brother's life, reconnect with the space that he wanted to be in and lay his ashes in a place that was significant for him. Hmm, that's beautiful. How was your father on this journey? Was he, were you guys in similar kind of spaces um, spiritually? We were in similar spiritual spaces, but we're on, we were on a very different trips. Although he made it to the cave, he left while I was doing my ceremonial work inside it. And I had no idea. And so his challenge was to work in his own way with his grief, as was mine. And those are very different for who you are. I find it interesting that when you're asked to tell your story, you tell your brothers? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder like, how you feel about that. I think our story is intertwined. And so the connection is... My story is finding what was significant for him. It's the best story that I can share about myself is the work that I've done in this, in this space. Were you practicing this before, or like kind of alongside your brother, or did this come kind of after? So my brother had kind of opened the door to me, and so in a lot of ways my brother was my teacher too. Once your teacher's on the other side, they are a part of you in some ways. And that might be another reason why when I'm asked to tell my story, I tell my brothers, is because we are more connected than we ever were. I mean, this is a, maybe not unique is the right word, but a different response to somebody leaving this world intentionally that way. Um, have you ever encountered somebody who is considering leaving this world intentionally? Uh, not directly that I know of, but it's far more of a prevalent thought than many of us, I think, have any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, this story is a story of, of transformation. And the suicide was not the core point. It was just mm. a part of the story. Mm. I would tell people who are in that space to get out of their head. There's always something around that can be felt and, and known that's valuable. And I don't know what everybody's story is and the pain that's there, but I know that there is ways that you can, you can feel in a healthy way if you give yourself space to focus and put down the story and just, and just be. After a break, We'll be back with more of Adam and Kelly's thoughts on the conversation. 
and see how she takes the Hill family's Tibetan pilgrimage and turns it into poetry. This is Versify. Hey, I'm Jacob Lewis. If you like Versify, you will love Neighbors. I'm on a quest to make sense of the human experience through the lives of the people in my community. There's something magical about getting an intimate pass into someone's world and hearing about moments that transformed them. I was shot within seconds of exiting my my car. See, what people don't realize is that we all have things that we carry that can bring us together. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and get to know your neighbors. I love the last lines of the poem, After the Hurricane, by poet Edgar Kuntz. In them, a speaker reflects on his estranged father, imagining the moments of his life. Sometimes he walks out to the river and lets the wind sift his lank and matted hair. Sometimes he peels his socks and stands in the murky current and thinks about his wife. I hold him like this in my mind all afternoon. I love how the process of writing can allow us to render and reconnect to people in our lives who might otherwise seem out of reach. And I think for Adam, the process of talking about and writing into his brother's passing has given him a means of holding Eric in his mind. One of my fears is that you never share in a way that honors the story. And in, me, in this case, it's really a, it's a, it's a eulogy. It's a eulogy for a life that I loved. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, he ha- has been working on telling this story, and I think he's made a practice out of kind of telling his brother's story and how it intertwines with his. I've noticed that sometimes um, when I ask somebody to tell me your story, a lot of the times there are people who respond by telling a story of somebody they love. And I'm really interested in that. I'm interested in a desire to either preserve or represent that person in some way. What I hope comes through is the joy that I have in the story and, and, the, and the love that I have of my brother's path and the path that he chose without it being bogged down by some of the sadness of, of, the, of the end of the story. And for me, it's really just the beginning. Adam kind of spoke in terms of tasks to do and whether that meant what he's in the process of doing or something that he or somebody else failed to do and what do you do with that failure. So I kind of organized the poem in the language of what your task is, your first task, your second task, and things like that. And it's kind of a sense of, you get a kind of an energy from that kind of command, I think, of your task is this. So I structured the poem that way. This is called Pe Che. Your first task is to tell your father. Be the spear in the body he falls into all at once. Walk with him, he untethered, in the wind that guides you. Your second task is to receive your brother's name, his name that pierced the veil between refuge and failure. It is the blade and the blooming all at once. Your third task is to lay him to rest in his first death. Pass through iron gates four times and hear a stranger say, you're on the right path. Hear this, you're on the right path. Your name is on the wind of another way. Know that this is the right path too. Your task is to fail. See that this failing does not keep the path from rolling on before you. Your task is to know. 
see that his leaving is not at the center of his living. Your task is to speak. Speak the word that opens a door. Speak the word that shuts it. Speak for him and for yourself, your lives upon lives intertwined like the clasp of a brother's hand in yours. Speak. I just want to take a breath. That is stunning. I'm like, I'm like getting the feels, you know, and it's like my heart's just like bouncing around inside listening to that. So I always feel grateful to be able to participate in this kind of process. It's hard to be seen, first of all, at all, and it, it, to be seen in a way that is reflective of their own experience at the same time. It's a real gift. It's that's the art, and we we don't usually see ourselves. So thank you for for seeing me. And the, I noticed that the word task is here all the time. And there's an aspect of, for me, the, uh, th- that it's an unending task. That's a current and ongoing reflection, is how unending are the tasks that we put in front of ourselves. Yeah, and I was definitely thinking that, and I didn't end the poem. My idea had been that it just keeps on going. like, And that we had talked about how certain events and things aren't the beginning or the main core, and like... They aren't necessarily a beginning, middle, end of something. So I kind of wanted the poem to live in that space too, where it's not all-encompassing, but it is kind of a force in a direction perhaps, but it isn't, hasn't ended yet. Versify is a production of Nashville Public Radio and The Porch, which trains our poets and hosts our storytelling events. Editing for this episode came from WPLN's Mac Limebaugh with additional editing from Anita Bug. The episode was written and produced by me, Joshua Moore. Carl Peterson masters the show. The audio from the conversation was recorded by Tasha Lemley at the 2018 Southern Festival of Books. The music was by Blue Dot Sessions and Claudio Nunez, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. Versify is distributed by PRX. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Or send us your feedback, diversifypodcasts at wpln.org. We'd love to hear from you. And if you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal ideation, you can ask for help at 1-800-273-8255 or by visiting suicidepreventionlifeline.org. And we hope you'll tune in again to hear the beauty of how we can turn your life into poetry one verse at a time. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.